Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. All right, if you have your Bibles tonight, if you'll take those and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. I'm beginning tonight a, a, a brief series on aspects of the life search of King David. Tonight on the search for repentance and Sunday morning the search for worship. If there is any person in the Bible about whom I have taught, preached, whom I have studied more than, more than Jesus, I don't think who it is. But if there's anyone I've studied as nearly as much as Jesus, it's King David. I am fascinated with this complex figure out of history and out of the Bible. He's, he's one of those giants, complicated, huge, a multifaceted genius, musician, poet, warrior, politician, leader. And like, like so many giants, David was, David was like the girl with the curl in the middle of her forehead. When he was good, he was very good. And when he was bad, he was horrid. So many of these giants, when they, when they hit it, it's huge. It's great. Splendid. And when they fail, it's horrible. One of the things that fascinates me about David was the reality of the man. The Bible doesn't try to dress him up. He's complicated, weak in places. Phenomenally strong in places, brave in places, then melts like a wax in a hot stove. It's, it's, it's just, you can't even get your hands around this personality, this life. I, I taught at two different universities. I taught 16 week series on the life and times of King David. So there's no way that I can compress that amount of study and scholarship, if you will, or uh, Bible study or anything into two services, but I've tried to pick two critical moments in the life of David. Now, why did I call it David and the search for? One of the reasons is because it's hard for us to get our minds around the fact that, that David lived in, at the very beginning of the Iron Age. He was almost like a, a tribal warrior king. If you, if you think of King David as, as like, um, Queen Elizabeth and, and the, the, the throne of England, you're, you're, you're not thinking right. You have to think almost as a, like a, a Bedouin chieftain. The, the nation of Israel, we call it the nation of Israel, but, but at the time of King David, it was a, it was an amalgamation of tribes who had in their history killed each other almost as often as they'd kill their enemies. And David, uh, Saul first, and then Saul failed, and then David pulled them together with the strength of his own character and, and galvanized these tribes into, into the beginning of a nation. But, but don't impose on David our Christian theology. 
I think, I think that, that it's easy for us now to talk about repentance and, and what we just sang about mercy and to talk about the blood of Jesus and to talk about forgiveness and salvation. But you have to remember that David was born a thousand years before Jesus. He didn't have a theological framework. He was struggling through the complexity of his life and the warrior times in which he lived. David lived his life at war. And, he, and he's struggling in all of that complex historical times and primitive theological realities to search out what it meant to be a man of God. So some of the things that David said, in a sense, in a very real sense, I can, I can make a case for the fact that David should be numbered among the prophets. Some of his psalms are profoundly messianic in nature. Profoundly prophetic. Jesus quoted from the Psalms on the cross. And yet, a man of deeply conflicted personal character. Not the least of his failures is the one that is the most known. And that is his, his sin of adultery with the wife of one of his generals, Uriah, uh, the Hittite. I want to just rehearse the story for you briefly. I think there are people who don't even know David was in the Bible and don't even know the story of David, what followed or anything else, who used the terminology David and Bathsheba. But they, they don't really know the story. But this was it. David um, saw Bathsheba bathing on a rooftop. He summoned her to his house found out who she was. He asked who she was. They said, that's the wife of one of your generals, Uriah, who was in the field fighting. And he brought her to his house, committed adultery with her, and impregnated her. When he found out what it was, then he decided that he would palm the child off on the general. So he summoned Uriah the Hittite home from the front and on a pretext and then said to this good and honorable and loyal servant, go to your house now, and I know, I know you're, you're home from the war. You'd like to go and, and sleep with your wife, knowing that the woman was already pregnant. David knew it. And Uriah said, your majesty, God forbid, my men are sleeping in the mud and in the cold. They are suffering at the front. Do you think I'm going to go home and take a bath and get in a warm bed with my wife while my men are suffering? God forbid. He said, but I tell you what I will do. I will sleep here outside your door and be your personal bodyguard tonight. But that personal loyalty and that decency of Uriah, the general, did not melt David's heart. David wrote a letter and sent it back to Joab, his kinsman, who was the general of the army there. And he said, Joab, by the way, I won't spend a lot of time on Joab, but if David is Wyatt Earp, Joab is Doc Holliday. Anytime David needed somebody to bust a cap in somebody, it was Joab that he called. <laughs> and David sent a note back to Joab and said, attack the city tomorrow. Put 
Uriah the Hittite in the front, attack the city, and when you get right up next to the wall, quickly retreat and expose Uriah to danger and somebody dropped a stone on him off of the wall and killed him. And David waited until it was nearly a decent amount of time, brought Bathsheba into his house and married her and swept it under the rug. Imagine a government that would commit all kinds of terrible, illegal, immoral things and then hide it. It's almost, it's unimaginable, but now it looks like it's all covered. It looks like it's all finished. The baby is born. Everything looks like it's fine. Davis breathes a sigh of release, relief. Okay, that's finished. And one day somebody says, Nathan the prophet is here and would like to come in and speak to you. Now I'm going to tell you what I think. I think that David's heart beat faster. I don't know this. Maybe I'm projecting, but I, am I the only one that has ever come to a point where you realize something bad's about to happen? And you just, oh man, this, oh, this prophet, oh man. But David calls him in, and this is the story. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, and the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate out of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. There came a traveler unto the rich man, and he was not willing to take of his own flock and of his own herd to prepare it for the wayfaring man who was coming to him, but instead took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who was coming to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, the man in the story. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord liveth, the man who hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel. I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. I gave thee thy master's house, thy master's wives into thy bosom. I gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. In other words, anything you would ask. Why hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do this evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. Thou hast taken his wife to be thy wife. Thou hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from thine house because thou hast despised me, taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house. I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor. He shall lie with thy wives in the sight of the sun, and for thou did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. 
And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. Howbeit, or however, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. And Nathan departed unto his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore unto David, and it was very sick. David therefore besought the Lord for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night upon the earth. And the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the earth, but David would not, neither did he eat with them. And it came to pass on the seventh day of the fast that the child died. And the servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke with him, and he would not even hearken to our voice. How then will he vex himself if we tell him that the child is dead? But when David saw that his servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said unto his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth, and washed and anointed himself, changed his apparel, changed his clothes, came into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he came to his own house. And when he required, they set food before him and he ate. And he said unto his servants, then said his servants unto him, what thing is this that thou hast done? Thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was alive, but when the child is dead, thou didst rise and eat. And David said, while the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now that he's dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her, lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name in Hebrew Shlomo, Solomon. The second baby of Bathsheba is Solomon. I want you to keep that in your mind. And listen to the last words of verse 24. And the Lord loved him. This is a complicated story. And apart from the grace of Almighty God and the Holy Spirit, we will not be able to receive it. Heavenly Father, with our hands upon the word, our hearts and minds as open as we know how to get them, we're asking, Lord, that in the deep inner search of our own lives, we also may follow the search of David, thy servant, for true repentance. Come, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Do not think for one moment that David had to agree with Nathan. For that is not true. When Nathan came in before David in open court and said, thou art the man, you did this. You're so self-righteous and outraged over this person's sin, the theft and death of this little lamb. What about what you did? You killed Uriah the Hittite. You slept with his wife. You committed adultery. You're the man. I promise you, I wasn't in the court that day, regardless of what the young people think. I wasn't in the court that day, but I promise you Joab's hand went to the hilt of his sword. Joab had his hand on his sword, and all David had to do was say, and he'd have taken that prophet's head off at the shoulders. But David, despite his sin, which was, let's think about what it was, not just adultery, but murder, conspiracy to commit murder, and conspiracy to cover up. Despite all of that which had encrusted itself around him, when the Spirit of God through the word of prophecy penetrates that, 
David doesn't argue. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't call for Joab to act. He looks at the prophet there before him on the floor, and David on his throne says, you're right. I did everything you said. This is, you, you have to think of a warrior king on the edge of the Iron Age. That's not the way kings did stuff. That's not, that wasn't the royal way. The royal way was off with his head. Kill this guy. You can't talk to me that way. But it, it's the way that, that this man, despite his sin, is able to sense the penetrating, convicting word of God and who agrees with the conviction. Confess. Confess means con, C-O-N, the Latin prefix, which means with. Fes, F-E-S, to agree. So to confess means to agree with the Spirit of God. So when the Spirit of God probes us, when he prods us, when he moves within, it doesn't have to come through a prophet. It doesn't have to come in some horrible, embarrassing, open moment. It can, trust me. But it doesn't have to. It can be just that, that moment where you get, where one, not you, where one is all sanctimonious and upset and angry. What about these people doing this sin? What about this kind of thing? What about these wicked people? What about this kind of thing? And the Holy Spirit, am I the only one? And the Holy Spirit comes in there and says, yeah, well, how do you feel about your brother-in-law? What's the last time you said something really mean and cutting about somebody? And it probes you. You can defend, you can, you can defend, well, well, Okay, it's bad. Well, that's bad, but Lord, look at what he's doing. That's a lot worse. I, I have to tell you, it is one of the it is one of the serious temptations and failings of the contemporary evangelical church. The church in America today is obsessed with the sins of others. This is harsh to say. But you can go into almost any church in America and crank up the peanut gallery preaching about homosexuality. We love to hear it. Tell us how horrible they are. But in the midst of a sermon like that, what if God says, yeah, but, yeah, but what about your heart? It's not dismissing their sin. It's not dismissing somebody else's sin. This is all about David. That's the, that's the point of this. This David's search for repentance begins with David. This, this sword that goes, double-edged sword that goes right to the juxtaposition between his, his mind and his spirit. Pow! You're the man. Quit talking about this guy that stole this lamb. You're the man I'm talking to. Man. Until you have felt that word, that conviction, that, that stinging rebuke from the Lord, you can't even begin the search for repentance. That's, that's, that's not an occasion for, for horror and guilt and condemnation. It means it's the moment where the search begins. God is saying, I'm here. I've arrived. The spirit of prophecy is at work within you, and I'm calling you to a new place. But you can't get to that new place until you agree with me that you're where I say you are. 
No, <laughs> let, me, let me make this clear to you. If you think I'm being self-righteous, nobody likes it. Nobody likes it. I don't like it. When the Holy Spirit invades that moment and there's that, that wince. But David says, you're right. The second thing is this. There is a line in Amazing Grace that we almost never sing anymore and we, we, ought, to, we ought to do. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. We want to jump to the relieving power of grace. But the convicting power of grace, there is a sense in which we don't even know what mercy means until we tremble in fear. And Nathan says, you've unleashed, you've unleashed hell in your house. Every generation, there's going to be a rebel. In every generation of your family, there'll be somebody that'll draw the sword against you. You're going to die. Your family's going to be baptized in blood. You've unleashed hell in your own house. And David says, I deserve this. I did it. I know I did it, and I confess. And listen, immediately, instantly, instantly, David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And the next, in the second half of the same verse, Nathan says, the Lord hath put, the, put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Did God change his mind? Did he change his mind? Well, okay. No, it's because God was searching David's heart. You're going to die. Sin unleashes death. David says, I, I sinned. Okay. That's honest confession. That's where we start. You won't die. We start with honest confession. That's that. The grace that comes and makes me tremble in fear before God and the grace that quickly follows it and says, let me take away all that fear. That fear was to bring you to a place of confession and repentance, but I don't want you to live under that fear. I don't want you to walk under that fear. I don't want you to, to live your life in horror of what the future holds. I, I love you. You won't die. You won't die. However, this is the complexity of this story. This is a very difficult story to teach on if you take the whole thing. It's much easier if you just pluck one or two verses out of it. But if you take the whole story, this is very complicated. And it's going to challenge some theology in here. Nathan says, you won't die. However, nobody sins in a vacuum. And when you sin, you unleash damage in the lives of people you care about. And the baby is going to die. That's, is that a hard passage of scripture for anybody but me? Man, the baby hadn't done anything. No, and the baby's in heaven. There's a statement here that's hard. It's rough. Sin does damage. Sin is never a victimless crime. Sin breaks hearts. Sin disappoints. Sin wounds. Sin causes disease. Sin causes disorder. Sin causes confusion. And if it would all only happen in the life of the sinner, that would be fine. 
But when we sin, we damage other people. The spirit of death operative in us unleashes death in the experience of others. When people sin, people get sick. When people sin, people hurt. When people sin, marriages break up. When people sin, homes are confused. When people sin, mothers' hearts break. When people sin, people wind up in all kinds of depression and fear and loneliness and hurt. When people sin, people can die. And it, and this is, this is, see, the Bible will never jerk you around. The Bible makes it perfectly clear. The people who die as a result of sin are not always the sinners. And then David is searching. How do I handle this? What do I do? So he, 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 he calls a fast, he goes into a fast, he won't eat, he won't change his clothes, he won't wash his face, he won't shave. Seven days. Can he, can he change God's mind? Can he, can he alter the outcome? Can he? Longing, hurting, aching. I, I just have to tell you, this is a, a cautionary tale. You, you can repent of the sin and you can be forgiven. You may not always be able to alter the outcome. A, a, a naughty little boy takes a rock in his hand and thinks how fun it would be to break that picture window. It's just enticing. He can't resist. It's seduced. The sight of that window and the thought of it shattering just seduces him. And he cocks his little arm out and throws that rock, and the moment it leaves his fingers, he says, oh, God, I'm sorry. Does God forgive him? No, it's not a trick question. Does God forgive him? Is God going to stop the rock? No. The wind is going to break. If he's my little boy, God isn't going to stop other things. <laughs> no, you see, we, once the rock of sin is, is let out of the sling, once we, once we loose the sling, the rock goes. We can, the thrower can find forgiveness. But you can't always stop the damage that's done. That's the, that's the real grief of sin. If everybody that was sin would be the only one, they'd be the only one to get hurt. Somebody gets drunk, drives drunk, veers across the center lane, head-ons into a nice, sweet family of Christian people, kills two children, puts the father in a, in a hospital bed for the rest of his life, and a little woman has to go back to work and support her crippled husband, grieving over two dead babies. And that guy in prison for vehicular homicide finds Jesus. Is he forgiven? Yes, but the rock is out of the sling. This is, this is what, see, these stories, these are not Bible stories. These are not all tidy. This is showing life is real. Sin is real. Damage is real. But David thinks in all of this, there must also be something else that's real. There's got to be repentance in this. How do I get back to God? This is very New Testament thinking. Jesus, if it's just the law, what do I do? Sacrifice a bullock, slaughter two goats, go to the temple, pay a temple fine. What do I do? How do I get? That's not what David says. David says, there's got to be some way to get my heart right. This is highly perceptive. 3,000 years ago, 
A thousand years before Jesus was born, a thousand years before the blood of the Lamb redeemed us from our sin, a man without any theological training, a warrior poet, says, the issue here, this did not arise out of anything except my heart, and therefore the issue is the resolution of the sin in my heart. So one day, he calls the temple musician to the palace, and he says, I've I've written a song, and I want you to get the singers together, and I want you to sing it in temple for everybody. Get some huge crowd of people, and I want you to sing it publicly. The musician says, great, this is exciting. Let me read it. And he begins to read it. And he looks up, and he says, your majesty, we we can't sing this. Everybody's going to know what, everybody's going to know what this is about. Maybe, every, maybe everybody's willing to forget it. Nobody's still talking about Uriah the Hittite. Bathsheba's your wife now. Let's, can't we just forget it? Why, why do we have to deal with this publicly? David said, you sing it. You sing it and you sing it every time I tell you to sing it. What did he write? To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came upon him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. In other words, David even puts in the introduction the reason that he writes it. This is about my sin. And he sends it to the chief musician. It doesn't say this is written in David's secret diary. We find it 900 years after he dies. He says, I want this song in temple. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before thee. I'm hiding nothing. I did it. I did it. I recognize it. I hate it. I hate the memory of it, but I did it. I acknowledge it. The first secret in the search for repentance, fess up. Just tell the truth. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgression. My sin is ever before me. In other words, I can't quit thinking about it. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mayest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. In other words, I deserve, you ever hear people say this to me, I just want what's coming to me. You ever hear people say that? I just want what's coming to me. <laughs> oh my God, not me. Do, do you? No, really, don't ever say that. No, I don't want what's coming to me. I want what's coming to Jesus. I'm gonna, I want to be a joint heir with him. <laughs> I know what's coming to me. Bobby Burns said, who should escape whipping? Who, who will escape hell? If everybody get what's a, you don't, don't ever ask for what you deserve. <laughs> That's hell. <laughs> Behold, I was shaped in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me 3,000 years ago, a thousand years before Jesus, not a word of Christian theology written, and David is dealing with original sin. Whew. Sin is in my blood, he said. It's an amazing theological statement. Behold, 
Thou desirest truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part. Thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop. That's that's a stunning statement. That's New Testament theology of the propitiation of sins by the shedding of blood. The hyssop was the little shrub that the priest would take and dip in the blood of the lamb and sprinkle. He says, wash me in the blood. A thousand years before Hamashiach is even born. Wash me in the blood. It's a miraculous statement. In his search for true repentance, he he begins to discover the sanctifying, forgiving grace of the blood which is shed for his sin. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. But then he goes further. He says, Lord, I just don't, I don't want to just be forgiven. Make me hear joy and gladness. Restore the joy of my salvation. It's one thing to be forgiven. It's another thing to feel that forgiveness in your, in your bones. Lord, restore, restore, heal the bones which thou hast broken. Hide thy face from mine iniquities and blot, from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Even then he's not far enough. Forgive me. Give me back the joy of my salvation. And then look what he says. Not only is he dealing with the theology of original sin and the theology of cleansing by the blood, he's now dealing with the theology of sanctification. 4,000 years before John Wesley was born. He's dealing with the theology of sanctification. Not just forgive me, but create in me a clean heart. Oh God, renew a right spirit within me. He says it's not just a matter of being forgiven Change the heart that dreamed this sin up. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O Lord. Thou God of my salvation and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. In other words, when I know that my sins are forgiven and I know that my joy is restored and I know that your sanctifying grace has changed my heart, the result is going to be worship. I will sing aloud. Now look, he says the law won't work. This is, this is a warrior prince a thousand years before Jesus. Look at, look at this, look at this verse right here. Verse 16. For thou desirest not sacrifice, or else I would give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offerings. Everybody in his generation is trying to offer burnt offerings to get rid of sin. He says, that won't work. I know it won't work. I sin from my heart. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. Now, remember what I said a minute ago. When we sin, we unleash death in the lives of others. Nobody sins in a vacuum. There's no such thing as victimless sin. You need to hear that. But then look what he says. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. 
In other words, David says, when I sin, I unleash death. When you give me grace and forgiveness and sanctifying power in my life, you're doing good to all the people around me. There are people in this room tonight whose lives, activities, and failings have hurt other people. And the promise of God is that when God begins to do good unto you, he does good to the nation all around you. David says, I have been a source of pain and grief and death. Now I'm going to be a source of goodness and grace. Thou shalt be pleased with the sacrifice of righteousness and with burnt offering and whole burnt offering, thou shalt offer bullocks on thine altar. The chief musician says, Lord, your majesty, King David, please. Let's don't sing this in front of everybody. Everybody's just going to say, ooh, that's about Uriah. He said, write it down. It's about Uriah. Why, why do we have to bring this up? David said, I need you to bring it up. I need you to bring it up. Write it at the top of the music. David wrote this when he sinned with Bathsheba and conspired to murder her husband. Write it on the top. Write it in the introduction. He said, if everybody sings this for 10,000 years, I'm not just memorializing the goodness of God. I'm memorializing my own sin. The search for repentance begins with that kind of brokenhearted confession. I sinned, I've sinned, and I don't care who knows it. I'm not going to wallow in it, but it's real. I sinned. I put my faith in the, in the forgiveness of God through the blood of Jesus, and I'm believing him to restore and cleanse and sanctify my heart, and out of that I will come to a worshipful life through which will come goodness where there has come pain and grief. <sighs> que hombre! What a man is this! What a man is this, David! When he sinned, Wow! It's not like he cheated at chess. <laughs> I mean, murder, conspiracy, cover-up, adultery. A child died because of him. But when he, when he began his search for true repentance, he leads us into a New Testament process of redemptive and sanctifying grace that you can hardly even find in the New Testament. But that's not all. Let me close with this. Listen to this. And David goes back to Bathsheba. Okay, the deal is done. Can't undo that. He goes back to Bathsheba, and she conceives, and a new baby is born. And that baby is Solomon, and God loves him. <laughs> Don't you see? God says, I will restore the whole thing. I'll bring the whole thing back. I'll restore everything. He says, I, I will give you a baby by the same woman. I will give you, that was the baby of sin. I'll give you the baby of grace. I, that was the generation of death. I'll give you a generation of life and leadership. <laughs> here's, here's the sort of the neat little star on the top of the tree. Years later, when David lies dying, one of David's sons 
is trying to conspire to seize the throne. And Bathsheba knows that she has a promise from David that Solomon will be on the throne. She's all alone in the palace, an old woman now. And she's saying, how will my son Shlomo, Solomon, how will he ever get on the throne with this other guy's forming a coup d'etat? And who is he in, who is he in cahoots with? Joab. And this old lady's all alone. And says, so a knock on her door, on her bedroom door, and her maid-in-waiting says, my lady, there's someone here that wants to see you. And she says, oh, who is it? She says, Nathan, the prophet. She says, no, I don't want to see that mean old man. The last time he came to my house, my baby died. I don't want to see him. And Nathan bursts into her room and he says, I have not come to you with the word of death, but I've come the word of life. Solomon, your son shall be upon the throne. Don't you see what it means? Don't you see what it means? Don't be afraid or resistant or don't. David doesn't. Look at Psalm 51. Is there any mention of Bathsheba? Is there any mention of Uriah? You know, he didn't say, well, no, what I did, that wasn't right. But if that old general had gone home like I told him to, he'd still be alive. Does he mention Bathsheba? Well, Lord, you know, I'm just a man. If she kept her clothes on, on the roof, Lord. On the roof. What do you expect of me? No, he says, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this which is evil in thy sight. What I'm trying to say, guys, is this. Your bartender may believe you when you say your wife doesn't understand you. God knows your heart. You want to hear what I'm saying? And that's all of us. I'm in this. If this, if this sounds to you like, if this sounds to you like I'm laying something on you, you're not hearing me. We're all in the search for forgiveness and cleansing and sanctifying grace and life where there's been death. And the great good news is the same grace that makes us fear and makes us have to face the reality of sin and face the devastation of death is the same voice of grace that says you shall live and not die, that says I am a God of grace and forgiveness. You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at Dr. Mark Rutland or visit his website, drmarkrutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.